Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's have a few moments of prayer to ask God's blessing on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that uh, trying to understand you is not a matter of conjecture, it's not a matter of our imagination, but it is a matter of reflecting upon that which you have revealed to us about yourself that we may come to understand what we can of your character, of your plan and of your purposes in human history. Now, Father, as we reflect upon your word and your revelation to us this morning, we pray that while we would be challenged with its significance, with how important it is to truly know your word, to read your word, because at the very least, because you have taken the time and put forth the work and effort over the centuries to preserve and maintain your word and to give it to us, then we should at the very least take time to read it and to make it a part of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying in 2 Kings 18, which is a section that deals with one of the greatest threats to the history and the existence of Israel, at this point the southern kingdom of Judah specifically, since the northern kingdom had already been defeated by the Assyrians. Uh, that it was one of the greatest times of the existential threat for the southern kingdom of Judah in the ancient world. Hezekiah was the king, and Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, and the Assyrian army has now camped out at Lachish in Judah and has captured numerous towns and defeated numerous towns in, uh, in Judah and laying siege to Jerusalem. At that time, he sends in, that is, Sennacherib sent in three of his top leaders in order to uh, exercise a little psychological warfare against, uh, against uh, Hezekiah and those who were uh, trapped in Jerusalem with him. And the basic thrust of their challenge is the same challenge that we find throughout the Bible to those who trust in God, those who believe in God. And it's the challenge that's first articulated by Satan as the serpent in the Garden of Eden when he addresses Eve and said, did God really say that you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It is a question that at its very core challenges the integrity of God's 
uh, revelation? Did he really say that? Did you, he really mean that? Is his word really trustworthy? Can you really count on him? Uh, does he really have your best interests at heart? That's the same question that's being asked, uh, uh, being, uh, being the focal point of the propaganda of the Rob Shaka and the, the military commander that uh, Sennacherib sent to Hezekiah. The question is, can you really trust in this God? Look at all these other gods. You've got the gods of the, uh, 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 of the Phoenicians. You've got the gods of the Egyptians. You've got the gods of the Arameans or Syrians. And they couldn't protect any of them. Nobody's gods can protect them. Why do you think your God is so special that, that, um, that he's going to protect you? I mean, and, and the same question comes up today. We look out on our world, and there are all kinds of different uh, religious options. There's a whole religious cafeteria out there. You can take and choose whatever you whatever you wish on any given uh, week or any given day, and say, "Well, today I think I'm going to take this and this from Hinduism, and that and that from Buddhism, and maybe a little bit from." Uh, uh, ancient uh, nature religions, and I'm just going to sort of uh, mix things up and create my own little religious uh, system here, my own religious philosophy of life so that I can get by. And somehow we have uh, so denigrated and diluted the concept of truth that truth no longer refers to something that is universal, something that applies to anyone at any time in any country, any culture, any ethnic group, that truth is that which, which is unshakable and that which is eternally applicable. And so truth now becomes something that's totally subjective. It's what I think is true, what works for me. It takes on a pragmatic tone. What works for you is great. I'm happy for you that you find joy and happiness as a, as a Mormon or as a Buddhist or whatever. Uh, but have you ever taken the time to look at the foundations of your faith, whatever that may be. Are those foundations unshakable? Can you evaluate those in light of uh, external evidences, whether it be historical or archaeological, uh, geographical in some cases, whatever it may be, is there verification that validates the foundations of your faith? And the thesis that I'm presenting last week, this week, and next week is that only the Bible can be validated in terms of history, in terms of archaeology, in terms of the basic claims and observations that are made in the Bible uh, related to science, related to uh, things that are not, it's not a science book, but it makes statements that relate to science. It's not a geographical textbook, but it makes comments related to geography. And what we discover is that nothing stated within the Bible has ever been proved to be wrong. Now, there are a lot of things that we can't evaluate for whatever reason. You can't go back and find non-biblical authentication of the existence of Abraham and Sarah. But what we can do is we can go to places such as Ebla. Last time I pointed out and I looked at some historical or archaeological things, Ebla was discovered in the early uh, early 70s. It's located up in uh, northern Syria. And what they discovered there was a civilization that was quite uh, quite large 
in the, that existed about the same time as Abraham. And what we discovered by looking at the tablets found in the libraries there is that names like Abram and Sarah and uh, other names that we find in the Old Testament were common names in the early 2nd millennium B.C., and so, and, and the context as it talks about the way people lived and what they did and how they traveled, uh, it fits perfectly with what is described about the life of the patriarchs of, of Israel at that time in history. So while it doesn't come along, uh, archaeology doesn't come, all, come along and prove that you had Abraham and Sarah and they were advanced in years when they gave birth to Isaac, what the descriptions of their life and the way they lived fit that particular era where the Bible places them. Whereas things changed historically, just as we don't live the same way as the Founding Fathers lived here 200 years ago, those who lived in uh, the ancient Near East, what we usually refer to now as the Middle East, those who lived there uh, in approximately, let's say, 1500 or 1400 B.C., which is about the time of the Exodus, they didn't live the same way they had lived 500 years earlier. And so uh, what we do by looking at the Scripture and comparing it to what we discover archaeologically is that the Bible fits the context in which it claims to have been written. Now, one reason that's important is because there are a number of claims made in challenging the authority and the veracity of the Bible that say that, well, the Bible really wasn't written at that time and in that era. It was written much, much later. Now, the reason that they try to make that claim and their real agenda is if the Bible was written later than it claims to have been written, then what that does is it wipes out predictive prophecy. For example, if Daniel wasn't really written in the middle of the 6th century B.C., roughly between uh, 586 and 535 B.C., if it was written later, for example, around 250 to 300 B.C., then much of the predictive prophecy in Daniel would have been written as history. Well, what's so miraculous about uh, writing history? Nothing. But if, if Daniel was written in the mid middle of the 6th century B.C., and he's predicting the fall of Babylon, the rise of Media Persia, the defeat of Media Persia by the Greeks and the rise of the Greek Empire, the defeat of the Greek Empire eventually by the Romans and the rise of the Roman Empire, then you have something that is truly remarkable and astounding. You have somebody writing in detail, not just in generalizations, but somebody writing in detail about the future and something that comes true down to the most minute detail of the, of the prophecy. And so this morning what I want to look at as we answer the question, can we really trust the Bible, is fulfilled prophecy and how we can look at prophecies given in the Old Testament, how they were fulfilled uh, in the ancient world, and then that helps us to see the uniqueness of the Bible. Just by way of review, last time I put up a couple of flowcharts to help us just orient our thinking so that we think about this in a logical and rational manner and not in an emotional or subjective manner. 
manner. Whenever we talk about uh, religious things, people always want to bail out into some sort of statement such as, well, I feel like it should be this way, or uh, it seems to me like, and their, their ultimate authority is themselves. That's the same mistake that, that Eve made in the garden when the serpent said, uh, has God really said this? The way he shaped the question was to get Eve to think in terms of putting herself in a position that judged or evaluated God. And so what, what she had done was already set herself up for failure by putting herself in a position over God, that thinking that she knew more than God, who, of course, being omniscient, knows all things. So we want to think logically and rationally. If we're going to say we believe something and that something is true, then there ought to be some sort of way of validating that, uh, at least logically. So the first question we asked was, does God exist? There are only two ways to answer that, yes or no. If the answer is no, then, of course, we don't go any further. And now we have a major problem trying to explain the existence of everything. Some philosophers have indicated that the greatest question is, uh, in philosophy, is why do things exist? And, and being able to answer that. Uh, so does God exist? The answer, if the answer is no, then we go no further. If the answer is yes, then the next question is, can God communicate? And again, the answer is either yes or no. If he can't communicate, then by definition, he can't be God. So the answer, therefore, must be yes, God can communicate. That next, that question is is developed further, can God communicate clearly? In other words, he may be able to communicate, but if it's fuzzy, then what good does it do? So is God capable of clear, precise communication so that those who, uh, to whom he is communicating can understand what he says? And if God is God, then he should be able to create creatures who have the right receptors to understand what it is that he's communicating to them. So if the answer is no, again, you know, he's not really much of a God. If it's yes, then we continue. And the next question would be, well, if God can communicate clearly, can he protect that communication? In other words, once he's communicated, is he able to protect it so that it is preserved down through the ages and those that live a thousand, two thousand, five thousand years later will be able to have a, an understanding of what he, uh, what he said in the past. So we concluded by saying if God can communicate, clearly and protect his communication, then what would its characteristics be? So if God communicates clearly, then we would expect that his uh, word would be internally consistent. God's not going to contradict himself. It's going to be accurate so that uh, he doesn't make mistakes. He's going to be supported through evidence. The evidence doesn't prove it. It validates it or confirms its veracity. It would be internally logical and rational, and it would be without error. I also pointed out by way of introduction that the Bible claims for itself to be the very voice of God. Uh, we have statements such as uh, Jeremiah 26.2, thus says the Lord. Uh, the phrase God said is used 46 times in the Bible. God spoke is used 12 times. The Lord said 233 times. The Lord spoke 
133 times, says the Lord 502 times. And there are various other ways in which that's stated. Uh, if you if you do a, a, a computer search on those phrases, you'll pick up those numbers. But there are sometimes that those phrases have intervening words. And actually, last time I said just if you add those up, you have over 900 references in the Old Testament to a claim that it's not human. This is not human thought. It has been it's revealed by God through humans. But actually, there are over when you when you broaden it out, there are over two thousand times in the Old Testament that there are claims that the this revelation, that which the prophets wrote down, did not originate with them, but it originated with God. He spoke, and they wrote it down. They're not writing down their own thoughts. They're not writing down their own ideas. They are writing down that which God claimed. Now, when we look at that and that claim, then we have to say, well, is is that true? If the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man, then that's either true or false. No other options. Either it is what it claims to be, or it's not what it claims to be. If it's not what it claims to be, if it's false, then the Bible's not even better than anybody than any other book. So let's uh, let's close our books, go down to Barnes and Noble, and uh, just pick a book off the shelf because any book no matter what it is, is equally valid in terms of finding uh, eternal truth. So if the Bible is false, then it's no better than any other book, so who cares? Let's go home and have a good meal. If the Bible is false, it is a fraud and it is deceptive. It should be rejected completely, and not only would, could it never be termed the good book, if you're logically consistent, it would have to be the evil book because people have based their lives on and their hope for eternal life and their whole understanding of life on something that's that's claims would be completely fraudulent. And so if the Bible is not true, then it is not even a good book. You can't say that. You can't even say it has some worthwhile things in it. You would have to uh, destroy destroy it completely. But if it is true, then it is the unique book of the universe. It's the unique book of all of history, and it should be valued above all things. That's what the uh, writer of Psalm 19, that's what David said, that it is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and it's, it's sweeter than the honeycomb. So nothing is more important than studying God's Word. Nothing is more important than being in Bible class. Nothing's more important than daily studying and reading your Bible. If you've never read the Bible all the way through, then that's something you ought to set as a goal and just start trying to read four or five chapters a day. Uh, It's one of the great shames, embarrassments of our generation is how many Christians are biblically illiterate. It ought to be just an embarrassment how many people are biblically illiterate. When you go back and you read Shakespeare, you read uh, many different writers and authors down through the last two or three hundred years, or even more in Western civilization, you can't really understand much of what they're saying because they use so many uh, references and allusions and imagery that comes out of the Bible. And if you don't really understand the Bible, you miss all of that. So you're just reading at a very superficial level. So just at a, from a secular viewpoint, just to be an educated human being, you ought to read the Bible all the way through uh, and be aware of what is said there. I pointed out last time that there are two tests that are given in the Bible for, under, for evaluating any claim that God has spoken. And the, we find these in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. That's the test of consistency, that God is not going to contradict himself. He's not going to say uh, that something is right in one place and that it's wrong someplace else. 
And so there's the test of consistency. And then the second test has to do with that of a prophet, and that is 100% predictive accuracy in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 22. And in that passage, the Israelites were told that if someone comes along and says uh, that uh, predicts something is going to take place, if that does not take place, then they are to be executed. If they had a 99.9% accuracy rate, it's that 0.1% that's, that's going to get them killed and prove that they are a false prophet. The other 99.9% might just be good guessing. Uh, when it comes to uh, prophecy, we are not, uh, we're not ignorant of all kinds of claims today that come along that people think that they can uh, tell your future. You can open up the morning paper and read your astrology column. You can probably buy computer programs today that print out det- detailed forecasts for your life based on uh, uh, when you were born, the time you were bo- born, and your uh, zodiac. You can go to palm readers and tarot card readers and astrologers and and sometimes they say th- things that are make you think, "Wow, they must really be good at this." Look, look, and then as time goes by and certain things happen in your life, you think, "How did they know that was going to happen?" But but they're very good. A lot of these people are, are are good guessers because they understand human nature and they understand certain things that are going on. They speak in generalities that seem at times to be a little more specific than they actually are. And then when something close to that takes place, we think, oh, weren't they good? Look how close they came. Uh, but that's that's a totally different standard from that which the Bible has. Often what passes for prophecy today is simply someone who's a good judge of human character and understands uh, certain trends in human uh, personality, but the biblical prophecies are quite different. Biblical prophecies emphasize specific statements and details that in many cases are hundreds of years in advance, and they come true with 100% uh, accuracy. And this is because their source, the source of prophecy, is not in man. It is in the omniscient God who can declare the end from the beginning. This is one of the, um, one of the attributes of God and attributes of God's word that is emphasized many times in scripture to show that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is unique and his revelation is unique, that God is absolutely trustworthy as is his revelation. In Isaiah 46, 9, we read, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. The next verse, verse 10, goes on to say, I don't have a slide of it, but the next verse goes on to say, There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, what God says is one of the things that shows that he alone is God is that he can declare the end from the beginning. That means he can tell you what's going to happen at the end of history, at the beginning of history, and he won't get anything wrong. He, from, he, from ancient times, he can predict with 100% accuracy that which will occur uh, thousands of years later. No other religion in the world, no other 
holy book. No, no, there's nothing in the Quran. There's nothing in the Book of Mormon. There's nothing in the Pearl of Great Price. There's nothing in the Bhagavad Gita. There's nothing in any of these books that can even come close in terms of predictive prophecy to what we have in the Bible. In fact, they do not even engage in predictive prophecy uh, of a kind that is comparable to the Bible. The standard in the Scripture is absolute. Again, Isaiah 41, 21 through 23 gives us a gives us another example. God is talking to the um, <clears throat> talking to the Jews through Isaiah, and He says, "Present your case." The Lord says, "Bring forward your strong argument." That is, if you want to doubt me or you want to claim that um, that there is some validity to another religion. Uh, Isaiah 41:22 he says let them bring forth and show us what will happen. You know, go to your gods. Go to your opinion. Go to your philosophers. Can they tell what's going to happen next year, or the next year, or the next century or the next century? Let them show the former things what they were that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Can anyone else accurately predict things to come? Verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. Yes, do good and do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. So what God does is he points out that it is prophecy. It is the unique, uh, uniquely predictive aspects of the Scripture that uh, emphasize who he is and the uh, veracity of his word. So we can conclude by saying that biblical prophecy then is a declaration of future events which includes sufficient detail as to exclude human generalizations and vague predictions, human conjecture and probabilities, and which includes facts and details which only God could know. In other words, it's, it's, it may not be in as precise a detail as we might like for whatever reason, but it is in precise enough detail to where we know that it is, when it is fulfilled, it is done exactly as God said it would be done. And if it's not, if those details are not there, then the fulfillment has not yet occurred. So when we look at prophecy in the Old Testament, I, I thought about categorizing it in, in, in two ways. First of all, we have short-term or fulfilled prophecy. Now, the reason you have short-term or fulfilled prophecy is because that validates the prophet as a prophet. Now, there are those, you and you've heard this, and, and this is really a recent phenomenon, but you'll hear preachers uh, rhetorically say that a prophet had two roles. He was, he was a foreteller and a foreth-teller. By foretelling, they emphasize the predictive aspect, and foretelling is he is challenging or rebuking or correcting the king. And then what they do when they get into the New Testament is they say, well, the foretelling is out, but the foretelling is still there, so you can still have prophets today. That destroys the whole concept. That's not the biblical idea. The, the foretelling was intimately connected with the foretelling because in the Old Testament, when the prophet who represented God as a as a as a prosecuting attorney is prosecuting Israel for their failure to obey God 
the pre, that's, that's his role is he is challenging their disobedience and the prediction relates to the future judgment for their failure to be obedient. You can't distinguish the two, two. You can't have one without the other in terms of the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament prophet. So to validate his long-term prophecies, which would not be fulfilled in his lifetime or even the lifetime of his hearers, there were numerous short-term prophecies that would be fulfilled within his lifetime and the lifetime of his hearers, which validated his long-term predictions. So you have short-term prophecies, as we'll see in our study this morning, such as the dreams that God gave to Joseph, both the dreams in terms of his his uh, being uh, uh, bowed down to by his brothers and his and his father, as well as the dreams of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of of uh, famine in Egypt. Those are short-term uh, fulfilled prophecies. We'll look at several others. You also have long-term these unfulfilled prophecies, such as prophecies related to the glorious future kingdom of Israel, the glorious reign of the Messiah. And we have to understand that there are distinctions between uh, the timing of some of those prophecies. And the Old Testament predicts a range of things that would be accomplished by the Messiah, some of which were accomplished early when Jesus Christ came the first time, and some of which will not be accomplished until later. There are two aspects to the role of the Messiah. One is that he would suffer, and one is that he would rule. One is that he would be rejected by men, and one is that he would come and rule over men and establish uh, the kingdom. Uh, these do, are not happening at the same time. They do not happen at the same time. That would be a contradiction. The suffering Messiah came when Jesus came the first time and he died on the cross. The ruling Messiah will come when Jesus returns in the future. But let's take a look at some of these prophecies that we have in the Old Testament that confirm and validate the uniqueness of the of the Old Testament. I want to look at four, and if we have time this morning, uh, I'll bring in a fifth one. But but four, just these are things that you can remember when you're having a conversation with somebody and the issue of God's word comes up and how can you really trust it. Maybe you can remember these four examples. Uh, they're, they're pretty simple and something you can commit to memory. First of all, what I just mentioned is Joseph's, Joseph's dreams at the end of uh, Genesis, starting in about Genesis chapter uh, 37, we have him dreaming these dreams, initially dreams that uh, his father is the sun, his mother is the moon, and these stars are his brothers, and they're bowing down to him. And um, and that was later fulfilled when he became the number two uh, ruler, the second in command in Pharaoh's Egypt, and his brothers came to Egypt in order to find food to take back uh, for the family so that they could survive. So he had the dream that his brothers would bow down and serve him. And then he also later had the dream of seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. And he, the truth of that was such that the Pharaoh had him uh, prepare, rule over the land in order to uh, preserve and to save during the years of prosperity uh, in order to be able to handle the seven years of famine. And it came true uh, precisely as the dream 
had indicated. So that's one place we can go early on in Genesis. Another place that we can go is in First um, Kings. This is a passage that we had studied in the past, and, and it's a prophecy against the altar of Jeroboam. If you would, just turn with me uh, back to First Kings 13. Have a little quick sword drill here, as it were. And... Um, So we can pick up the context. Now, what's happened at this stage in Israel's history is that Solomon has died. His son Rehoboam was to take the throne. At the time that Rehoboam came to the throne, uh, his, his advisors counseled him to increase the level of taxation on the people. The result of that, because they were already fairly heavily taxed at the end of Solomon's reign, was that there was a tax revolt. And the ten northern tribes split off under the leadership of Jeroboam I, and the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed together in the southern part and had were ruled by the descendants of David through uh, Rehoboam. In the north, Jeroboam recognized that if he was going to have unity in his kingdom, then he was going to have to um, he was going to have to do something about the the worship, the religion of the northern kingdom. He couldn't have everybody up north trotting down to Jerusalem three times a year as their center of worship for God. So he built two alternate worship sites in the north, one in the southern part of uh, of Israel. Uh, at Bethel, and then another one up north uh, at Dan, and he constructed two, had two golden calves made, and set those up, and in one of the early examples of historical revisionism, he told Israel, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's in 1228. Well, having established this alternate uh, worship site, these two alternate worship sites in the north, uh, God was going to um, bring judgment upon him and announce a judgment upon him because of what he had done. Now, these events are taking place within the first year or two of Jeroboam's reign. He began to reign in 931 B.C., so you might want to jot that down in the margin of your of your Bible there. These events took place somewhere around 931, 930 uh, B.C. at the very beginning of his reign. There is a prophet that God sends to um, to Bethel at this time to challenge Jeroboam and to announce a judgment upon him and upon this altar that he has constructed to a false god. This uh, prophet is referred to as a man of God in verse 1 of chapter 13. Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn uh, to burn incense. And then this is what the uh, prophet announced in verse 2. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Notice again this claim that this is coming from God. It's not from him. It is by the word of the Lord. See, when I ran phrase searches on those other phrases, that wouldn't have picked up this one. That's why I said there's, in addition to those, there's at least another thousand ways in which uh, statements in the Scripture are claimed to have originated with God. This is one of them. Um, <clears throat> he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places 
who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he, verse 3, he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. That's the announcement of judgment there. But notice the... Notice the precision there. A child from the house of David will be born. His name will be Josiah. And this Josiah will sacrifice a priest of the high places on this altar, and men's bones shall be, shall be burnt on that. Now, how in the world could you be that specific in a prophecy? Well, certainly somebody might try to manipulate the prophecy, and we're going to have a child, we're going to name him Josiah, but that doesn't mean that the circumstances would be such when the child becomes grown that he would be able to do this. It didn't happen, this kind of thing did not happen uh, any other time in Israel's history except some 200 plus years or 300 plus years later. The, the prophecies fulfilled in detail in 622 B.C., approximately 308 or 9 years later. And we're told about it in 2 Kings 23.16. Josiah, the son of the most, one of the most uh, evil kings in the ancient world, uh, 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 Manasseh, or Manasseh, is does what his grandfather Hezekiah had done, and he leads the nation in a tremendous restoration of the law and revival. And there is cleansing and restoration of genuine, true biblical worship at the temple, and that's described in First Kings chapter, the early uh, earlier part of First Kings chapter, excuse me, Second Kings chapter twenty twenty three. And then in starting in about verse 14 or 15, he goes north to Bethel, which is, remember, by his time, the northern kingdom's gone. Bethel is still is just right on the border between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And so he goes up to Bethel, and there he is going to uh, destroy one of the uh, fa- uh, false uh, altars, that uh, the altar that was established there by Jeroboam. And in verse 16 we read, 2 Kings 23:16. Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain. He's there at the altar. He looks to the side. There are these graves of these priests. And he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it. That is, he's defiling this false altar to this false god. Defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God, that's the man of God back in 1 Kings 13, 2, the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, well, that's the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Verse 18, he said, then, that's Josiah, let him alone, let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So what we see is there's a prophecy given in 931 B.C., and then this is fulfilled in precise detail in 622 B.C. This isn't just coincidence. So the first prophecy that we think of, the first example, are Joseph's dreams. The second is the prophecy of the man of God against the uh, altar of Jeroboam I. A third prophecy is the prophecy of Ezekiel, predicting the destruction of Tyre. Uh, Tyre was one of the chief cities of the Phoenicians, 
and it is, it, its prediction of its defeat by uh, Ezekiel is another one of those uh, tremendous prophecies given in the Old Testament that is also fulfilled uh, within the uh, basic period of the Old Testament, partially within the canonical period and partially in the intertestamental uh, period. The name Tyre actually means a rock or hard pebble. The city itself was located on a part of it on an island and part of it on the shore, so that it was a large, uh, large city. Uh, Tyre was known as, uh, as it had a great harbor, and it was known as a place that sent out many commercial vessels throughout much of the Mediterranean and even past the uh, Pillars of Hercules out into the Atlantic. And their sailors went as far. Many think they circumnavigated uh, Africa. They went to England and many other points. Uh, some even believe that they made it as far as North and South America and applying uh, their, their trade routes uh, around uh, around the globe, and so Tyre was a, an extremely wealthy uh, wealthy city in Phoenicia. It, uh, the name meaning rock is sort of a play on words here because God's going to make that rock a barren crag uh, in the uh, context of the of the prediction. So here's the location of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast of Phoenicia, what is now modern Lebanon, uh, just to the north of the border. Uh, border of of uh, Israel. This purple line here is the border separating uh, the north of Galilee from uh, <clears throat> from Phoenicia. Now, within the passage, and if you wish, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 26, 1 through 6. We'll look a little bit further than that, uh, down to about verse 14 is the extent of the passage. There are six predictions that are made. Six specific statements that are made about the destruction of Tyre. Now, first of all, before we get into that, let me give you the date of this prophecy. Ezekiel is taken captive in the second siege against Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. The first attack is in 605. The second attack is in 597. It's not till the third attack, which is in 586, that Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. But that was the third invasion by Nebuchadnezzar. And each time he came, he took away captives. In 605, he took Daniel and his friends with him back to Babylon. In this second invasion, uh, Ezekiel was taken as one of the captives back to Babylon. And so he dates a number of his prophecies from the time that he is first taken uh, as a captive. So in verse 1, he says, Now in the eleventh year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now he doesn't mention the month, but he does mention the year... And he, he, uh, uh, <clears throat> this would date this prediction to, uh, f- the calendar year of 587 BC, which would begin in the Jewish calendar, uh, the ritual calendar. It would begin with roughly our time period of March, April. And it would be near the end of that year, probably in, in February or March of 586 BC. This is approximately five or six months before the destruction of the first temple, which occurred on the date of Tisha B'Av. The month is is Av, and um, this is the date that the first temple was destroyed. If you were uh, alert to what's going on in the Jewish community, 
this last last week on uh, Monday night to Tuesday was Tisha B'Av, and they it changes its exact date on the English calendar because the ritual calendar of Israel is 360 days. It's based on a lunar uh, lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, and so they they uh, uh, had a it was a time of remembrance, according to Jewish sources. Both the first and second temple were destroyed on the same date, uh, some uh, 655 years apart. So it is in the early spring of that year, before Jerusalem was de- finally destroyed and the temple destroyed, that Ezekiel makes this uh, prophecy. Remember again, the date is approximately 586, early 586 B.C., Tyre will not be finally destroyed in the way the prophecy speaks until 332 B.C., some 270 years uh, later. Now, in this prediction, he's going to say several things about how Tyre will be destroyed. And he is going to predict that Tyre will be destroyed by, Nebuchadne- by Nebuchadnezzar. And he does destroy not the whole city, but he destroys the mainland part. And he comes from, as he comes from the, uh, comes from the north. Second, uh, Ezekiel predicts that many nations would come against Tyre, not just one. He predicts that Tyre will become like the top of a flat rock with, and it will be completely barren, completely destroyed. The remains would, uh, no longer be present there for, uh, archaeologists to examine centuries later. He says that it will be so barren that fishermen will spread their nets over the, the, the site. Uh, fifth, he said Tyre will be thrown into the water uh, and never be rebuilt. And sixth, he says that Tyre's vassal cities would be destroyed. Now, if you're looking at this particular passage, it also gives you the reason or the rationale, the basis for this judgment. And the basis is, is anti-Semitism. It's given in verse 2 where Ezekiel says uh, that the Lord spoke to him and said, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It has opened to me. I shall be filled now that she is laid waste. So the Phoenicians, especially those in Tyre, were gloating over the defeat of Jerusalem by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and because they uh, uh, gloated and were... Uh, glad that Jerusalem was destroyed so that they could take over the trade routes and take over their commerce. Uh, for that reason, they were also judged just uh, within the next uh, within the next year. So we have an opening of the passage in uh, or the prediction beginning in verse two, and it's sort of a summary. And I want you to notice this as we look at this, uh, starting in verse three. Uh, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will, will cause many nations to come against you. So it begins with the prediction of many nations. And um, will come against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. So God uses a, an illustration that is common and very much understood by these uh, people of the sea, that just as the waves of a storm destroy uh, can destroy <clears throat> that which uh, it, it overcomes, so can the, uh, uh, so will you be destroyed by these many nations. And verse four, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her 
her towers. I want you to note that this is using a third-person plural pronoun, they, 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 referring to the nations. Um, It goes on to say in verse 5, it will be a place for spreading of nets. It shall be plunder for the nations. Uh, Also, her 6, her daughter villages, that is, the surrounding suburbs, the surrounding towns that uh, also benefited from her, the vassal villages surrounding her would also be destroyed. And all of this is so that they will know that I am the Lord. And then there's a shift that occurs in verse 7. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Names him specifically. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, which uh, horses and chariots and horsemen and army with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the field. So the outlying suburbs will be destroyed uh, first. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He'll direct his battering rams against your walls. And with his axes, he will break down your towers. There was a 13-year siege from 585 to 572 by the Babylonians before uh, the uh, Tyrians finally caved in to the siege. And then Baal II was installed as a puppet ruler. From that point on, the, um, the rulers of Tyre had to live in Babylon uh, and they they did everything that the ruler of of the of, of Babylon told them to do, and all the way down through verse eleven, there's a reference to second to the third person singular he 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 referring to Nebuchadnezzar. Then in verse twelve, it comes back to the they talking about the nations. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses, etc. And goes on to talk about the result of the cumulative effect of other nations that will come against Tyre until the final destruction in verse 14 and 15. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord God, have spoken. And this is what happened uh, and culminated in, at the siege of Tyre by Alexander the Great. Now, here is a diagram. As you see, there's a landmass to the right. That's where the old city of Tyre was located. That was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. When Alexander came along, by this time, the people had fortified the island, uh, and they had built walls around the island uh, city of Tyre. And so what Alexander did was he got his army to, uh, to work, and they took all of the rubble left from the destruction of the old city on the mainland, and they started throwing it into the uh, channel between the island and the mainland, and down to the point where they scraped all the topsoil off of the rocks of the old city and pushed that into the water in order to form a causeway so that their armies could then get across the channel and attack and destroy the uh, city of Tyre on the island, which is exactly what took place. And so here we have a photo of a fisherman uh, drying his nets at the site of ancient uh, Tyre. It has never been rebuilt according to the prophecy. Fourth prophecy from the Old Testament that also demonstrates the accuracy of biblical prophecy is the destruction of, of, of Nineveh. Now, most of you think of Nineveh in terms of another ancient prophet, and that's Jonah. Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh and to announce judgment on Nineveh and to call them to repentance towards God. This occurred approximately 200 years before Nineveh was actually destroyed. Nineveh is actually destroyed in 6 
uh, in 612. So in the early part of the 8th century, Jonah went there. Uh, he didn't want to go there, so he hopped a ship to Spain which is ancient Tarshish. On the way, God brought a lot of storms against the ship, and uh, they figured out in their uh, superstitious way that somebody on board uh, shouldn't be there and was displeasing to God, so they cast lots and ended up, uh, Jonah identified himself as one running from God, so they threw him overboard, and God <clears throat> sent the uh, fish bus to pick him up and take him back to the mainland. And he wasn't a whale. Whales don't have throats large enough to swallow a human being, but it was a great sea creature. We don't know. It's not identified precisely. Uh, There have been other examples in history where men have been swallowed alive by uh, various other sea creatures and have lived to tell about it. What's interesting in a couple of examples that occurred in the 19th century is when they get regurgitated finally, uh, they're they're a little, uh, they've gone through a bleaching process from the acids in the creature's stomach, and so they come out with their skin bleached and their hair bleached, and they really stand out. I mean, when you think about the ethnic groups that live in the Middle East, they tend to have darker skin and dark hair, and somebody comes walking into Nineveh that's been bleached white, uh, he's going to get everybody's attention. And then when he starts announcing that uh, God is going to bring judgment upon them, gives his little personal testimony, then that may give a little more validity, and that's what happened. Nineveh repented, we're told. They turned to God. And you had uh, hundreds and thousands in Nineveh who believed the Old Testament gospel of God's provision of a Messiah. And so God did not destroy Nineveh at that time. That really irritated Jonah, so he had a pity party outside the walls. That's described in uh, uh, in the third chapter of Jonah. And uh, God had a little object lesson uh, with a worm and a gourd there to teach him that God raises up nations and God uh, destroys nations, and it's not really up to Jonah to determine when and how that takes place. So Nineveh survived another um, another 180 or 200 years, and at that same time, or prior to their destruction, about 40 years prior to their destruction, Nahum, uh, one of the uh, so-called minor prophets, Nahum predicted the de- destruction of of Nineveh. There's a location of Nineveh. It's on the um, uh, Tigris River just opposite the modern uh, city of Mosul in what is modern Iraq. And its site was discovered in the 1830s and has been pretty well excavated um, uh, since that time. They've discovered the ancient city wall, which was uh, uh, three miles long and about a mile and a half wide. It was had a total of a circumference of about eight miles with 15 gates, and it was one of the most uh, uh, beautiful cities of the ancient world and the seat of power for the emperors and the kings of the Assyrian uh, Empire. Its golden age was earlier in the 7th century B.C., around 663 B.C., which is approximately the time that Nahum wrote. Uh, Nahum, in, in the third chapter of Nahum, it describes the defeat of Thebes in in Egypt, and we can date that to approximately 665 B.C. It was rebuilt. Uh, Thebes was rebuilt in um, in 654. So between 
665 and 664 B.C., somewhere in there, is when the book of Nahum was written. And Nahum predicted that Nineveh would be destroyed by an overflowing flood. He'll make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Uh, what do you, and verse uh, Nahum 1.9, what do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. There will be a complete destruction of Nineveh. Affliction will not rise up a second time. In other words, it's not going to be rebuilt. Uh, Nahum 2.6, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is, is dissolved. And this is what happened uh, in its destruction is that uh, uh, the gates were smashed and the river uh, Tigris was uh, u- utilized, diverted, and flooded the city so that uh, <clears throat> as the uh, river and the, the ir- irrigation canal, also referred to as a river, the Kosa River, uh, flooded uh, the city, it dissolved the sun-dried brick, which much of the city was built with, and the city was uh, completely destroyed, so much so that some 200 years later, when a Greek army was uh, in full retreat from a Persian army, they went right past the site and didn't even realize uh, that that is what had happened, or that's where they were. They had, it had completely vanished from uh, human consciousness. In the second century A.D., the Greek satirist uh, Lucian said, Nineveh is so completely destroyed that it is no longer possible to say where it stood. Not a single trace of it remains. So what we have here are just four examples. I think there are four outstanding examples that we have from the Old Testament of predictive prophecy that is fulfilled in detail. It doesn't happen by chance. It's not just coincidence. And there are many, many other prophecies that we could go to in order to demonstrate that. It fits the test, the second test that God gave Moses in Deuteronomy 18, that if a prophet claims to speak in the name of God, then what he says will come true 100% of the time. But there are also unfulfilled prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, prophecies related to the Messiah. There are many that were fulfilled when Jesus Christ came the first time. There were almost a 100 different prophecies related to the Messiah that were fulfilled the first time, and there are about 200 that have not yet been fulfilled. The chances of even... Ten of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person is on the order of uh, such a magnitude that uh, it's been compared to filling the entire state of Texas with, with uh, silver dollars uh, up to about four feet in depth, marking one of them with a little red fingernail polish, stirring it into the whole pile. The chances of a blindfolded man picking out that one marked silver dollar among all of those uh, is greater than the chances of ten prophecies coming true in one person. So when you have a hundred prophecies from the Old Testament all being fulfilled in one person, the fact that he's born in Bethlehem of the tribe of David, uh, born of a virgin, uh, that he is betrayed by a friend, crucified on a cross, rose the third day, all of these are just some of the prophecies uh, related to the, the Messiah. The fact that all of those came true indicates again that that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be. Just like the written word of God, it's either true or it's false. If it's false, it's no good. It's, it's evil, in fact. Jesus is the same way. He claimed to be the living word of God. And he said, I am the, 
uh, way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. If he's lying, then he's evil. He's not even a good teacher. He, he is deceiving thousands and thousands, uh, millions, in fact, of people into thinking that he is their only hope for eternal life. So we really have only uh, two options when it comes to uh, when it comes to the Bible or it comes to Jesus. Either they're true and they're what they claim to be, or they're false and they are some of the most evil of all things, evil written revelation, evil living revelation. So we're left with only one option. It's obviously not evil. Therefore, the Bible must be what it claims to be. Jesus must be who he claimed to be. And therefore, we must trust in the word of God, both the written word and the living word, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things in your word, to be reminded that your word is faithful and true, as the psalmist said, that we can we can rely upon it, that it is gives us everything we need to know about life and about you. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the truthfulness, the faithfulness of your word. Father, too, that this, the testimony of your word is towards uh, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just as Abraham was justified by faith alone, so we are justified by faith alone, not by works. And it's not in any way dependent upon who we are, what we do, but on what you have done for us at the cross when Jesus paid for our sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we, what we, what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.